You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one size fits all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me as usual is my co-host, Camille Moorhart. How are you doing, Camille? Hi, Tom. I'm doing well today. Our guest today, without giving out his name yet, is focused on firmware and being able to detect whether firmware has been hacked or manipulated. And that's super critical when you think about hardware platforms, whether whether they be clients or servers or IoT devices, you want to make sure that the hardware is in the state that you expect and hasn't been subject to any firmware exploits. Yeah, and he gets into a little bit about how you make a threat model or a threat map so that you're encompassing all aspects that could affect the firmware and the hardware, as well as the software. Exactly. But he dives deep in that space. Well, and I think it's important because when you think about security, and we've, we've even talked about this before as well, it, you don't want to think about the way that the firmware was designed to work. You want to actually look at it from kind of the opposite and test ways of exploiting the firmware in ways that it was never designed to do. So, you know, in the in the conversation that we have, I think he gets into the details and I hopefully for the listeners, they start to get a better flavor for what's really at stake when you talk about, do I really understand the state of my platform before I use it? Yeah. And I also thought it was interesting that as a person who's kind of dedicated to the security of firmware and making sure that uh, companies can monitor that and manage it effectively. He's thinking of threats both from kind of rogue actors and mistakes, also state actors or you know highly organized uh, attacks. So he's really kind of running this gamut of anything that could be coming at an enterprise. Yeah, and that that's a great point because. When you think about the more sophisticated attacks, uh, meaning the ones that are more likely to come from either professional criminals or nation states, those are much more likely to be firmware-based attacks, at least in some way, shape, or form. And so while some people that may not live in the security world may think, oh, firmware, this is kind of a nerdy topic, probably doesn't relate to me, that couldn't be further from the truth. Firmware-based attacks are, are some of the hottest classes of attacks that are out there, mostly because, well, first, they're very, very hard to detect. And secondly, if you can successfully attack firmware, now you have control of the hardware. And when you have control of the hardware, you can pretty much do anything. And so it, it is definitely on the forefront of security attacks. And our guest's company is one of the leading companies in this space about finding and then uh, alerting customers to firmware that has been exploited. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to listen. Yeah, so let's go right into it and let's get started. 
Our guest today is Yuri Bulligan. He is CEO and founder of Eclipsium, the comprehensive cloud-based device security platform that protects enterprise devices all the way down to the firmware and hardware level. Headquartered here in Portland, Oregon, a local company, we gotta love that. This company was named to Fast Company's annual list of the world's most innovative security companies for 2020, the CNBC Upstart 100 list, and Gartner's cool vendor list for security operations and threat intelligence. So that's quite a list of accomplishments. Yuri, you and I have worked together for many years, and and I know that when you left Intel, you did so to fill what you perceived to be a niche in the security environment. Can you talk about that niche and what the need was for your customers? Uh, Yeah. uh... The whole paradigm of security and defense in depth that we've been using as an industry in the last decade or, or so have been centered around the user, you know, protecting the user, identifying the user and authenticating user with the now multi-factor authentication and protecting the user activity, web activity, email traffic and um, application activity. And um, the second component was really protecting the software that user interacts with, the applications, the behavior of those applications, patching, making sure that those applications don't have vulnerabilities and properly patched and that they're not malicious. What was really changing is the adversaries that realized that we're getting better at the software level, at the application level. We're getting better at monitoring user. We're getting better at monitoring behavior of the user and, and trying to find those outliers and you know deviations from normal behavior. And so the attacks and breaches have started to be discovered faster and faster, sooner and sooner. And that mitigates the impact. And uh, so the adversaries, starting with sophisticated nation states and then moving to you know, sophisticated non-nation state adversaries, you know, crime war groups, threat groups, they started looking for other ways, other ways where they can um, enjoy being hidden, being persistent, not being detected. And we started seeing a spike of attacks against devices, against the actual equipment and everything that comes with that equipment that organizations use. In fact, NIST um, has published the number of vulnerabilities in the device has increased fivefold in just the last four years. Uh, so that was uh, that was really the turning point because what seemed to be lacking is the security controls and techniques that industry needed to protect those devices, to protect all the software that is coming with those devices developed by manufacturers in the complex supply chain. So what was the gap that they were diving into? Was it actually going below that application layer? Camille, it's below the operating system. It's outside of the operating system. You know, we started seeing some of the advanced actors in the nation states have um, started going after uh, the firmware layer. The firmware layer in those devices, in the endpoints, in the servers, that is not really visible to the operating system and all the security controls inside the OS. Uh, So they started either exploiting vulnerabilities or they started infecting that firmware layer to get persistence because they cannot get detected. So that was the beginning. And um, most of the uh, major nation state threat groups today have the capability, but that has been a few years ago. Now, what we're seeing is, uh, just recently I spoke with one of the large financial services organization, and they're a target of a, a, a TrickBot, as an example. And that TrickBot is a, it's a massive 
botnet infrastructure that the TrickBot gang lends to a number of ransomware folks, to Conti and Ryuk and others, who's done a lot of damage in the last uh, few years. And um, there was a uh, joint industry effort to take down that TrickBot infrastructure. And yet they came back and adopted the same techniques that the nation state APTs have been using in the last few years by exploiting the firmware below the operating system in order for them to stay in the target infrastructure. So now we're seeing that uh, this has moved from nation state to crimeware, folks. So how do you even begin? I mean, if you've got to cover everything from application security to OS level security to below the OS, behind the OS, around the OS, I mean, how do you actually even begin? I think we as an industry are adopting gradually and, and, and should be adopting risk and threat centric approach where we're going to cover the fundamental pieces of uh, devices or the software firmware on those devices that are actually high risk or being attacked. And high risk may include the number of vulnerabilities are increasing in those layers and they need to be patched more often. You know, the exploitability of those vulnerabilities gets easier, um, maybe because patches aren't delivered for quite a while, or it becomes easier for adversaries to um, attack those layers. And so we need to, when we see that increase in risk, when we see that increase in attacks against those layers, that's what we need to cover as a security solutions. The challenge that our listeners may face is that we hear about these sort of theoretical attacks all the time, that, oh, this could happen or that could happen. But in reality, none of us really, or very rarely, do we ever experience it ourselves, and usually you don't even know of people, but you may read a story here or there in the press, but you sort of lived it. And I, I thought it'd be interesting if, if you could share you know, a couple of examples, obviously without names, of companies that did come under attack and what those attacks were like and how did those companies deal with the threat and then, you know, get past it. You know, let me use an example of a study that Microsoft just published. What they found out is that more than 80% of businesses have experienced at least one attack in the past couple of years that was targeting devices and the, the, the firmware code on those devices. That's a huge number. Why sometimes we don't hear about those attacks? We hear a lot you know, about some of the public exploitation of uh, VPN devices. In fact, ransomware operators, Netwalker and Maze and our evil groups, they all moved to exploit firmware on the networking devices like VPN and ADC application delivery controllers in just the last year because we all now use VPN working remotely. But those are public and you know, um, you know, quite a few of those. These are just small percentage. These are just tip of the iceberg. We don't hear most of them because they don't need to be reported. You know, they, yeah, and most companies don't want to admit that they they had something go bad. They, they, they right? don't have so to admit to. Right. <laughs> and, uh, they go unreported. Yet when we talk to companies in public and private sector, in almost every case, we hear a story from those companies that they experience some sort of a breach or some sort of issue related to the device, their devices that they rely on either in data centers or maybe in networking infrastructure or in on the endpoints. The very typical example is a ransomware has attacked 
one of the companies that we talked to, and they cleaned up that ransomware. Now, after a very short period of time, it came back. And that turned out to be that that ransomware has been using firmware implants in the endpoints that it was infecting. Uh, and uh, that's a very common theme or I'd say example of um, uh, how those threats uh, affect organizations. Because when they get into a persistence level into the firmware of those devices, they can come back, even after cleaning up. Yeah, so this particular example that you're talking about wasn't just a matter of somebody clicked on something they shouldn't have and it loaded some software onto the machine. It literally went all the way down and embedded into the firmware. So even if you completely wiped out the machine and started over from scratch, the ransomware is still on the machine because it's in that lower level firmware code that's on the machine. Is that right? It's exactly that. You know, the original infection might have been someone clicks the link. You know, just like the the other example I talked about, TrickBot, it, it is delivered through email malicious spam campaign. But then as they are in those devices, in the endpoints or in the networking uh, appliances in their firmware, then after cleaning up that infection, they just come back after a while uh, just because they're persistent. So at this point, you're beholden to them. They can turn it on or off whenever they want. Uh, you're now absolutely a ransom victim and the infrastructure can be brought down, disrupted. And that is a major concern for uh, a lot of organizations that rely on the uptime and you know making sure that their infrastructure stays up or they can be held for ransom multiple times by multiple groups. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. How do you know if you've been a victim of ransomware? How can you tell if it's hit you at the firmware level? Is there a way to find that out? Uh, so typically, uh, I don't want to go into a full pitch mode uh, as a CEO of a, of a company that builds technologies like that. But uh, this is what we are trying to solve. The, the type of visibility and the type of detection of those type of threats that we're trying to help our customers with. What would be your advice, just out of curiosity? I've heard different people in industry and public works or municipalities have different answers with respect to it. Do you think that ransomware should be paid? Do you think it depends? Is it black and white? What's your take on that? Uh, it's a Great question, Camille. Uh, I think it really depends. On the one hand, we absolutely don't want to um, incentivize those ransomware operators to um, make those attacks successful now and in the future, kind of increase their ROI of uh, making those attacks. But at the same time, um, you know, in certain cases, that ransomware is affecting you know critical functions, and um, we had a recent unfortunate incidents that involved uh, death of uh, patients in the in the hospitals because of the ransomware attack. Uh, in certain cases, they different decisions would need to be made in order to um, potentially save people's life or lives or, or save the um, infrastructure. From a firmer perspective, these are very damaging attacks because uh, we all remember the uh, the old case of NotPetya attack which was a kind of a ransomware slash wiper that caused a lot of damage to a number of organizations. It was actually attacking some of the uh, bootloader firmware components outside the US and caused damage through that. But the similar type of attacks in modern systems in the current environment can physically destroy infrastructure 
and physically destroy servers and in, in, in data centers, physically destroy, you know, critical endpoints that companies rely on. They that type of attack can physically destroy the infrastructure. So no, these are known vulnerabilities that exist. So the bad guys know that these vulnerabilities exist, and they are assuming that the IT administrators haven't patched these various devices. So it's a known attack, and they're just counting on people not having updated their machines. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In, in fact, they're right, because those appliances are almost never patched and never have been patched. Now, we're seeing that some of the organizations are getting better at actually patching them because almost every month we see the new vulnerability remotely exploited by a number of threat groups. As we speak, the, the number of organizations uh, are being breached because of the old legacy Excel and FTA appliance and because of the very simple old vulnerabilities. Now, as an attacker, they need to um, you know develop a very complicated exploit or an attack that needs to escape multiple sandboxes that are built by our um, applications and operating systems and escape detection by multiple endpoint security solutions and elevate uh, privileges multiple times. Or they can just remotely exploit a network appliance, a vulnerability that is a network web vulnerability in the firmware of that network appliance that has never been secured in the last 15 years. Um, so as we speak, those campaigns are happening, and uh, they have been on a huge rise in the last in the last year. So, hey, Yuri, um, are are you seeing? And maybe this is what you were alluding to, but as a lot of different organizations are moving into more of a hybrid model, and people are working out of a home office, maybe perpetually now for a portion of the week, are you seeing a shift, or are you expecting a big shift in the threat landscape? It absolutely has shifted and, and, and the adversaries shifted immediately because they immediately realized that all those remote endpoints, they don't have the traditional enterprise security controls anymore. They're outside of a traditional enterprise security perimeter. They connect to a whole bunch of devices. I'm talking a corporate laptop that is connecting through a home router and connected to home printer and so on and so forth that may be part of the uh, router botnet that uh, there are plenty of those uh, in, in the last few years. Uh, so absolutely, they shifted and they started exploiting the remote endpoints, the home devices that those remote endpoints are connected to, and the infrastructure the network infrastructure that those remote devices are connecting through, like those VPN appliances and ADC appliances and so on and so forth. One of our customers before the current pandemic, they had very few fully remote endpoints. And as pandemic hit, they moved to 99% remote, just like everyone else. And every remote endpoint, remote laptop has become critical asset for the company. And that's a very, uh, very typical scenario. What do we do moving forward? I mean, are we, do companies need to manage all of the different devices and endpoints that are in people's homes? Or is there another kind of a solution for that? Well, I, I think from a remote, from securing uh, remote work and remote workforce perspective, we need at least three components. One component is understanding who is connecting anything about the user, authenticating the user, uh, making sure that the user behavior doesn't exhibit any compromise or any attack. Uh, the, the second component is really securing the applications uh, 
and the software stack used on those um, remote endpoints. And I think we have a uh, great solutions on the markets, you know, from traditional antiviruses to next generation antiviruses and endpoint security solutions and so on uh, to do that. Uh, however, that is still user-centric, very user-centric, because uh, those are applications that typically user interacts with. But what we need to have is a component that understands the device that those users are connecting from. Uh, the device, uh, including all the firmware, including all the uh, software developed by the manufacturers of that device and, and suppliers of components and, and inside that device. Uh, so just really understanding if that device has been compromised has been tampered with or somehow infected. And the fourth component, I think what's important is that extend that to the remote access infrastructure. Because remote access infrastructure involves a lot of networking equipment, a lot of servers that provide that access, including maybe cloud, cloud-based and you know, servers and environments that provide that access. Uh, so that needs to be secured as well at the, at the device level. And there are new users there. These need to be uh, new type of solutions, security solutions that protect those uh, remote access infrastructure devices. So Yuri, I guess maybe to wrap this up, you know, for the people that are listening to this podcast who are involved in technology, but maybe don't live every day in the security world, what advice would you give them? Maybe one or two or three max kind of words of advice when you think about securing your platforms, keeping your company safe, what advice would you give them? The advice is fairly simple. They need to start looking and shedding light into pieces of that infrastructure that they did not have visibility in. And the actual equipment and the supply chain of that equipment, you know, the third-party suppliers that, uh, you know, provide those um, all sorts of devices we rely on is a, a very significant visibility gap. So, Bringing the, the visibility into the equipment, into the devices, and into that type of infrastructure is the first step. And based on that, organizations can make decisions informed by current risk, which devices need to be patched, which devices can be deferred, which devices need to be monitored closely for any sort of a compromise, which devices need to be monitored for supply chain breaches. You know, some of these devices might need to be inspected for breaches even even before they're being used. Before we let you go, we like to do a a fun little exercise and, and activity of sharing some, you know, pearls of wisdom or something you found really interesting lately that you think our listeners would find interesting as well. So I wonder, do you have anything on the top of your mind that you'd like to share with our listeners? By now, I think we're all fairly familiar with uh, this gene editing tool, the CRISPR-Cas9 that has been discovered in around 2012. And and one of the Nobel Prizes in, in medicine was um, two researchers discover, discovered it. What wasn't well known, I think, is uh, right before the COVID pandemic started in March, our own Oregon uh, OHSU had a the first ever gene editing surgery done uh, on a patient with uh, inherited blindness that was done on a patient, not on some DNA material or, or cells in the lab. Uh, that's amazing. And could the person see after that? The, the results are still it's being evaluated. 
they plan for 18 patients to um, do those trials on. Hopefully, we'll see the results soon in 2021. Wow. I had not heard about that. That's cool. And it's also interesting. That's happened right here in the backyard of uh, OHSU. So that's great. Uh, so thanks for sharing that. Camille, how about you? Any interesting things to share? Uh, well, this weekend we celebrated my son's birthday. And so I forgot to come up with a fun fact. So I've raced out of the room right before we started and asked my son, because it is his birthday today. I said, okay, you get to give me the fun fact, whatever it is, I'll say it on the podcast. And he said, crocodiles can't stick out their tongues. <laughs> so I Googled it. <laughs> And it turns out that alligators can stick out their tongues, but crocodiles cannot. Their tongues are secured by a membrane to the roof of their mouth, and uh, therefore they cannot stick out their tongues. So that is my fun wow. fact for the day. That is impressive. This is awesome. You know, so there's an, an another little interesting fun fact is that your son and my daughter share a birthday. Because uh, today is my daughter's 21st birthday, actually. How about cool. that? Yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, so my fun fact was not that. My fun fact is something... Uh, now, by the time this podcast gets aired, this will be long since history. But um, today is actually the day of the men's basketball uh, national championship game. And so I thought in you know, regards to, to that, it'd be fun to know what is the odds of picking the perfect bracket and, um, the odds of picking the, uh, perfect bracket. So the winner in every one of those games leading up to the championship game is a staggering one in 9.2 quintillion. Wow. So for those of us that don't know how big a quintillion is, sorry, quintillion, not quintillion, quintillion, if we just measured it in seconds and we said how many, how long would it take to do 9.2 quintillion seconds, it would be 292 billion years. So let's just say it's probably not. Can you help happen. me understand what 292 billion years is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty old. It's pretty pretty long long lived. But that was kind of interesting. Now that's that's assuming that you know nothing about basketball. So you're just literally it's like a coin toss. You're just heads or tails. If you do know something about basketball, they've actually rejiggered the uh, numbers. And it turns out it's still a staggering one in 120 billion to get a perfect bracket. And um, rest assured, this year, I did not even come close to the perfect bracket. Anyway, so there's my fun fact for the day. L odds are you are not going to pick the perfect bracket, but uh, you can still enjoy the games. Um, so Maybe next year. <laughs> it, it can happen. <laughs> Mathematically, we're all mathematicians here at heart, and we know it's possible. It's just probably not going to happen. But Yuri, thank you again for joining us for the podcast. I thought it was interesting and insightful, and I hope our listeners feel the same way. Thanks, Yuri. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Camille. It's been a real pleasure. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. 
The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.